0: Dave Monday here, Lead Professional Officer with United Union in the Health Sector, and I'm joined by
1: his lovely colleague, Nikki Lambert, Mental Health Nurse.
0: Yes, and Nikki, it's your second time on the podcast.
1: It is. A Do you remember the first? Technically a repeat offender now, I think. Yes, congratulations.
0: Congratulations. Uh, So you were back in episode one, series one. Yeah, we went out
1: to the Bethlehem uh, Art Gallery and Museum to look at mental health services at art. It was brilliant.
0: It was, is not it? And uh, it's great because I was looking at the stats before. In our first season, we've had over 500 downloads. That's brilliant. So I think that's pretty good, isn't it? I know it's not like as big as some podcasts, but I (laughs) think it's pretty good for our little podcast. I think so quite happy with that today's issue that we're concentrating on is money and mental health we've got a couple of interviews that we're going to share with you in a bit
1: one's from Nikki Bond and she's a senior research officer with the money and mental health policy Institute and Sarah Murphy associate director for advice information and training at mental health and money advice
0: Yes, so we've been quite involved with the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute in the past, and we go into a little bit of detail in the interview with Nikki on that. And Sarah met at a recent launch who spoke really well about the service that they offer to people. And I just really wanted us to get that information out to people because I think for mental health professionals, we all probably know about the link between money and mental health, but it's harder to articulate that with people that we're supporting. Thinking back in your own practice, Nikki, did you have any examples of...
1: Constantly, constantly. And also I can really remember that experience of of being hard on being a student myself and just being in so much stress at times from um, knowing you've only got £5 in your pocket and and when when the research came out about the kind of cognitive load of being um, stretched financially and having to think about how you're going to manage your life, how you're going to organise your choices just to get through it made such a lot of sense to me because I can remember being absolutely exhausted mm. from it. Not just exhausted from working all the time, like a lot of students do. Yeah. So in practice, doing your the theory work, um, but also doing shifts on the side. I worked um, nights of the weekend and would then come back and switch to day shifts, and none of that kind have done my health any good. No. But um, I certainly was in a much better position than a lot of my colleagues, and in a way better position than um, a lot of my service user colleagues yeah. as well. And I think even now, sort of in a position now where I'm, I'm in nurse education, um, and I, we try so hard all the time to uh, co-produce work with um, service user colleagues and experts by experience. They're carrying so much information that our students need to hear to be good at their job. And we're constantly frustrated because um, paying people or even accidentally paying someone too much will, will mess up their other... Finances to the point where it actually stops some people participating, yeah. because obviously if somebody is a professional and they, and they bring knowledge to you, you should pay them effectively as a result of it but it 's almost as if people are caught in a trap, whereas as soon as they come forward to offer you sort of knowledge and you try and sort of support that experience and, and actually have it as a reciprocal arrangement, um, the, the shutters come down on them, and most dreadful anxiety is provoked by having you know one one phone call hmm. from, from uh, certain more official sources, should we say. Yes. But it's, it's such a stress, stress to have it, it's a stress to try and work around those rules, um, to try and participate in society. And I think we put um, people with me- in mental distress in far greater mental distress because of the way that um, the austerity choices that have happened have impacted on
0: them. Just before we listen to the interviews, there was a few different issues that have either come Mm, up mm. recently or been present for for much longer. You mentioned there about the place that students are in, in terms of their finances. A few years ago, we had the situation where the government stripped away the support that students had and also forced students to have to pay for their education. Obviously, that's
1: about nine grand a year. Yes. And nothing not a small amount
0: no Mm. and it's that kind of huge burden that is placed on them for the future since that happened the government absolutely saw that the result was what it was told it would be that there was a real slowing down in people being willing to apply for nurse education and I think the government for a good while has been kind of thinking how it can come up with a new scheme that doesn't look like it's made a huge U-turn, mm. but is trying to kind of do something to correct that. Now they've come out with the plan late last year to pay nursing students between five and £8,000 a year. It'll be £8,000 for mental health nurse students because uh, mental health nursing is in a much more precarious position than general nurse mm. training is. Do you think this money's going to make a big difference to the students that you support and work with?
1: I think it would have been better to have left the bursary intact, which is what I would have preferred. And I think there's something about recognising um, the work, because this idea of them receiving a payment, and like, it's almost like a gift. Mm. Um, nursing students worked over the 24 yes. hour cycle. Um, they have to fork out to travel to placements. They do get reimbursed, but that. That's not, you have to find that money to begin with. It impacts the type of students that we have as well. So people who have families, people who are coming with life experience, particularly valuable I think in terms of mental health workers, are impacted by this. It's a, it's a big decision to make. So it's great that they're getting some money and they're getting recognition that what they do is a valuable public good. But I think it's less money than they had before um, and so whilst I wouldn't give it back, <laughs> um, I think that um, it will help some people. What I do like is that they recognise that a lot of nurses have um, childcare responsibilities or caring responsibilities and there's some starting to, to recognise that in terms of financial payment because childcare costs are so huge mm. and so many nurses are working shifts which it, it's really difficult to get childcare for. Yeah.
0: Just on money and mental health, Mm. I thought it was interesting that another story that came up recently happened at the beginning of this year. It started with Prince William doing a really valuable thing where he narrated a short film that the FA had at third round of the FA Cup. All the matches were preceded by a 60-second video which talked about mental health and it culminated with people being encouraged to create their own personal mental health action plan as part of the campaign and certainly saw it a lot reported in the press you know obviously got a lot of publicity which was great Uh, it was interesting because less than a week later again with the FA NHS England's mental health director Claire Murdoch criticised the FA she blew the whistle on the toxic tie up between betting giants and the FA Uh, and this was about betting companies being able to live stream football games. They've been limited in their opportunities to advertise betting In football and it's been it was a way to kind of get another foot in the door so there was quite a strong public outcry and since then the companies have taken a step back we know the negative impacts that betting has on mental health Mm. and yet we allow it to continue
1: The difficult thing isn't you've got some people say you can't have safe gambling and then there are other people who want to very much go down a kind of like um, the rules we have for things like drinking or smoking, so to have limits, to have places where you can and you can't. Um, I think the betting firms and that whole industry ha- have a very problematic relationship with mental health. And um, they will always talk about there are rules and regulations they have to follow to ensure if someone's classed as a problem gambler that they don't then um, support them or they redirect them to, um, to gamblers anonymous or some kind of help. But it's pretty tricky, I think, in terms of how you do the morality of it. And I I don't, for me, it feels like an unethical, mm. an unethical um, dodge to have them involved in something which is basically a family sport yeah. um, and introducing people to it at a very young time and making, sure, making that part of people's social enjoyment. Mm. For me, it feels unethical. And I, I worry about it, particularly when it's um, in a situation where people are, um, have, have had a drink, maybe or feeling that that's the way they're going to socialise. It feels like it's getting too many hooks mm. in people. Yeah,
0: and and I suppose it's that bit about we can either make things easy for people to do things or make things harder for people, and it seems really unfortunate that in this respect they've tried to make it much easier for people to, mm. to gamble.
1: If you've also got um situation where you are either you think your, your gambling might be problematic you're living with somebody who has those issues and um, mentalhealth.org.uk um, has what, um, a really interesting page on uh, gambling problems and what, what you can do as a, a result of it and it's got links to things like Gamblers Anonymous website um, and I think that's probably quite a good thing to have a look at. And yeah. there's some really interesting research from a mental health point of view as well on you know, why do people gamble well, What what's the kind of psychological rewards of it. But what I would also say is some of that research is really used as well to kind of lure people into gambling more. So it's it's interesting from, a, from different uh, perspectives. So I think one of the things that you were mentioning before the podcast was the loot box ban. Yeah. So this idea that sometimes online games will have in-store prizes or things that you can buy extra. You always hear these stories of parents who've been caught out when their children are playing yes. uh, a game with in-app purchases. And so they'll be playing around and then all of a sudden a bill will come through for a large amount of money. And there's something to be said. That it, it reminds me of, an, uh, come back, come back on a journey through time with me, people, <laughs> um, to when we used to have um, sweetie cigarettes. Yes. So there were candy. I used uh, to love them. Try and imagine a time, young people, <laughs> when this was an acceptable children's sweet. um it was a, a kind of candy cigarette with a little red end, and you yes. could actually have a. L- it came in a baby packet of cigarettes. If, now I look back on it, it does seem odd. Yes. But it's this idea about encouraging children to ape adults' yes. behavior and. Whatever you decide to do as an adult, that's one thing. But I think um, hiding um, gambling, hiding that kind of high-risk, low-reward behaviour in children's online games or as part of a family sporting event, that's where I start to feel very uncomfortable with it. Because on one level, you know, addiction is an adult experience, hopefully, and it has its issues, but I feel even more uncomfortable with something that's being particularly targeted at children, and that's what a lot of that kind of early psychological reward stuff is based on,
0: and 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 it's not okay. And and fair play to Claire Murdoch, who has called out both kind of things that we've talked about today. Mm. I think what's a shame is obviously politicians have got the power to regulate these kind of things in this country, and... Even though they're doing a review at the moment, hopefully they will kind of come out with systems that that kind of protects mm. the population because uh, it would have real value.
1: Mm. And you can see as well if you're, if you're someone who's vulnerable and you're feeling desperate, those kind of high risk behaviours are are a way that you might think is a way out. Mm. And it may it make I can absolutely understand the impulse to do it, but I also feel that um, a lot of those kind of big companies. Sort of, play that kind of like ethical borderline game where they, they say oh we're we absolutely concerned about this but most people's gambling is not like this yes um, and it kind of turns a blind eye to the people who die as a result of it. yeah The NHS has got a gambling clinic for children, if you Google it you'll find, um, opened last summer so it's, it's a big enough issue for it to have actually been part of our, our health service now so I think it is something that's a really interesting area for us to think about.
0: So we saw the first gambling clinic uh, open a decade ago in central and northwest west London and the NHS is opening another 14 including one in Sunderland was open a few weeks ago and like you say the, the, the first clinic based in London dedicated to helping children and young people I suppose it'd be interesting to know how a child in Sunderland gets support if that clinic is down in London the other issue that I just wanted to uh, mention briefly today, if you can mention this issue briefly, is the impact of austerity. Obviously, mm. uh, you know, a huge component of the problems that we've seen around money and mental health over the last ten plus years is the, the austerity that we've been through. We had an austerity special edition of our mental health nursing journal in. Uh, 2013 at the time that we did that I think we were quite kind of cutting edge to look at the issue between mental health and austerity I just looked again today at the edition that we have uh, obviously for our mental health nurse members uh, you can still go back and, and look at that edition, and I think it really does stands up today mm-hmm. uh, with lots of really good information uh, just looking at some of the uh, articles around uh, the stress measured for young Greeks mm-hmm. uh, You know, people Mm. in Greece faced huge problems around austerity when the IMF came in and kind of cut back on on public spending quite significantly. Uh, Also looking around challenging austerity policies. Uh, the age of austerity, recent global socio-economic crisis and its effects on mental health in, po- in Portugal, mm. so uh, it was a really kind of in-depth uh, exploration Absolutely. of
1: that. Well, even the BMJ are in on it now as well, so yes. <laughs> rolling in, I mean they've, they've um, put some really interesting work in there um, looking at the experience of people with m- in mental distress under the current economic climate and they've got examples like of 45% of people in who are in debt have mental health problems um, compared to only 14% of those who are not in debt, so you can see there's a correlation there straight away. That's absolutely out what you'd expect in terms of proportion. We've got a lot of um, overlap between um, rates of suicide and suicidal ideation um, with um, with being in debt. Uh, also, obviously, that kind of economic hardship, higher risk of unemployment, rent arrears, other debt, and also that kind of stress and social isolation. So it's not these things are not unrelated.
0: No. As members of trade unions, we're also an organisation that can help with these issues. If members have got problems at work around issues around pay, then obviously we could be an avenue to help support with that. And also in terms of hardship, we've got support that we can offer members that go into financial hardship. And alongside quite a few of the links that we've mentioned today, I'll put a bit of information in the podcast notes on that. So if people want to look into that in more detail, they can do. It's very Uh, important. And if you're not a member of UNITE, obviously look at other organisations that you might be a member of because they may well offer Mm. support and advice too. I think that's
1: really relevant for people in mental health as well because we see more and more people coming with social issues to mental health and mm. to primary care and fairness as well. Yeah. So there's research saying 60% of GPs says they don't have sufficient treat, um, treatments to deal with the problem. And that's because it's not a medical problem no. in itself, it's a socially caused problem. We've made choices as a society that have put pressure on the most vulnerable people to the point where it's killed some of them. Yeah. And that, I think, you, know, you, can't say it, you can't state it more clearly than that. And it's a choice that everyone has sat with. Mm. And it's, it's, a, it's a frightening thing. But you know, it's it's interesting when you have this kind of overlap between mental health and money, because if you just have a biomedical understanding of mental distress and unhappiness, sadness, anxiety, depression, low mood, and potential suicidality, you kind of miss the things that you can do about it. Mm. You know, you know, asking a GP to give someone medication when they're terrified of losing their home because they are financially strapped or because they have a gambling problem or because something like that is really missing the point that human beings have a holistic set of needs and mental health is in such a a great place to be able to look at people in the broadest sense. So absolutely there are anxiety and, um, and stress issues that we can work with. Using, using chemicals, using medications. And there are also a lot of things we can do psychologically, but there's also a lot of stuff which falls in the kind of public mental health remit, which is about how we choose to live as, as a society. And I think in, in terms of being in, a, being in a union, being a nurse and, and sort of having this expectation that you should um, put other people's welfare as, as one of your first concerns, that's what our NMC regulations say. Mm. There are things that we know are going to cause people incredible stress, and that distress is going to harm their health and well-being. Not having any money is one of those things, yeah. and particularly not having any money and it not being your fault, is something which is particularly I think challenging for then health professionals to try and find a reasonable response to, mm. and uh, it's much more useful for you in your professional career if you have a chance to think about these things and think about what you can do about it rather than be sat opposite somebody in a clinic or in someone's house and not have a response for these issues Hmm.
0: and i think just in the 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 points that you've made there really kind of leads really nicely into the two interviews that we've got today Uh, in terms of the interview with nikki those kind of comments about Uh, the work that we can do to support health professionals to know about these issues, to have a deeper understanding so hopefully can have a better impact but then also the interview that we did with Sarah as she gives some really good ideas of places that we as health professionals can go Mm -hmm. to support the people, the clients, the service users that we care for so I'm going to hand over to the interviews now and here you go
2: I'm Nikki Bond, I'm a research officer here at Money & Mental Health um, and I work with the rest of the research team uh, looking into the links between financial difficulties and mental health problems. We're a research charity who was set up by Martin Lewis in 2016 to explore the links between financial difficulties and mental health problems and then we do research and we um, publish reports and we make policy recommendations and then work with government, regulators, essential services to begin to break those links.
0: We've had a long relationship with Martin, uh, because before he founded the Policy Institute, he wrote a really good guide on money and mental health. And I know we've promoted that through our journal. But obviously, with the advent of the Policy Institute, we've supported quite a few of the campaigns that you've run. I don't know if you want to just highlight a few of those.
2: Three key campaigns that um, I think you've been really instrumental in. Uh, So there was the more recent one, which is Stop the Debt Threats which looks at the number of people who take their own life each year and how financial difficulties are. One of the factors involved in that. So we are campaigning to stop the wording within debt collection letters um, which can come across as quite intimidating and threatening. Um, so that's one of our campaigns that we're working on at the moment. One of our previous campaigns was around recovery space. So people who are experiencing mental health crisis, so they may be hospitalised or they might be into the care of the local mental health team. If they were in debt, they are still receiving collections activity, uh, arrears, notices, um, charges and interest on their their accounts. And one of the things that we campaigned for was for people to be given some breathing space from that debt collection activity if they're in a mental health crisis, and and we we won that. And and I know that you you really supported that campaign too.
0: And it's interesting that you mentioned those two examples, because I've been to the events where you've launched reports or launched those campaigns. And what's been a strong feature of all the events you've done is always having people who have lived experience having a voice in those sessions. How does the Policy Institute engage people who have lived experience of money and mental health problems?
2: So uh, people with lived experience of, of mental health problems and financial difficulties are um, central to, to what we do. Uh, we have a research community of over 5,000 people with either lived experience of mental health problems who, who, or who care for somebody with a mental health problem. And we go out to them um, on a weekly basis to ask for their views um, on different topics around their experiences of what's happened with their finances and how their mental health might be impacted upon that. And all of our research reports are, are built upon on that information that people
0: us. with that group of people is it something that's closed now or can people continue to join it
2: no people can still continue to, to, to join our research community you just go on online at money and mental health and you can join our research community any anybody can join um so whether you have lived experience or you're a carer whether you're a professional with lived experience or whether you are a professional that want to support people there's lots of capacities within within which you can join so please do
0: One of the reasons I wanted to get together with you today is I came to a a launch of a report. It just felt like a a really good time to meet with you just to go through some of the outcomes from that report. So I don't know if you just want to introduce the report that you
2: launched. Yeah, of course. So our latest report, as you said, we launched two weeks ago um, called Information is Power. um, And it looks at how we prevent financial difficulties for people with mental health problems. So a lot of our work today has been supporting people who are already in financial difficulty um, and how different services can support them, how the government can make better provision for them. Um, but we wanted to really look at the beginning of the cycle, and, and we know that people with mental health problems are three and a half times more likely to be in problem debt. So what we wanted to do was, with that knowledge, that we know that this is a higher risk group. How, how do we get? How do we support people to prevent them getting into those financial difficulties in the first instance?
0: Have you got some key outcomes from that report?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So as part of that we we spoke to hundreds of people um, with experience of mental health problems and and they told us of the shame and the guilt that they felt of struggling to manage their money. People described how they felt that it was a personal failing that they couldn't manage their money rather than recognising that this was an effect of difficulties with their mental health problems. So things like um, difficulties with cognition so thinking through things clearly concentrating problem solving are all side effects of some mental health problems which can make money management even harder so people told us about how these were their experiences how they found managing money even harder we looked at what people would want to try and avoid those financial difficulties so what sort of information support might help Um, and unsurprisingly people told us that they, they wanted information so to know that mental health problems and financial difficulties might can be linked, mm. so that actually, if I'm aware that, that those two things are linked, then maybe I can put things in place to support myself to, to prevent that that getting out of control or, or that becoming problematic. They wanted emotional support and, and, and validation, so knowing you're not on your own, knowing that this isn't just something that I'm, I'm not very good at managing my money, or all of a sudden it's all gone awry, but actually knowing this is, this is a side effect, this can be a side effect of the mental health problems. So people wanted information and they wanted emotional support. So we looked at how, how do we get that to people? So we looked at the contact points that people experiencing mental health problems might have and obviously our kind of natural course was, was to look at their contact point with health professionals. We considered how do we get that information to people because we already know that health professionals have a huge amount of demand on their time. Um, so to ask them to offer um, in-depth support so it seems unrealistic mm-hmm. um, and, and also outside of their area of expertise. But what we also thought about was actually this information about the links between mental health and financial difficulties and emotional support can be offered in quite a brief format, mm. um, sometimes uh, just giving somebody a leaflet, saying that this is, these, these things can impact upon you and these are places you can go to su- for support. So what we're looking at, um, one of the recommendations we made from it, is for primary care prof- professionals, so GPs and uh, nurses and healthcare professionals, to uh, be able to post people, to, to be able to not where they know somebody has a mental health problem, um, to be able to simply give them a, a leaflet which which identifies that this this can be problematic, that financial difficulties can be problematic for them, um, and actually then that information is is power, as the as says, and that people can go away and put parameters in place to stop themselves. From, from incurring financial difficulties.
0: And I suppose that's a big key kind of point, isn't it, that we know uh, many health professionals feel under huge amounts of pressure Absolutely. to do more work with less time. And I suppose it's how we can support those people to be able to do something in this kind of space, but without increased demand on them and hoping that that makes their jobs easier, yeah. but then has a positive impact on the people that they're helping and caring for.
2: Yeah, absolutely. This model, so, so we have called it a very brief intervention, but the model is, is, is well known within health circles. Um, so we've already got it for smoking cessation, we've already got it for domestic abuse, routine inquiry. So what we're just looking for is extending that. It's, it's a it's a 30 second intervention where you just recognise somebody has mental health problems and you, and you give them the piece of information. What our next steps would be is would be to look at how that piece of information could be produced. Um, so we are calling on uh, the Money and Pension Service and Public Health England to uh, produce uh, a leaflet which identifies uh, the difficulties. that the links between money and mental health and also provides that support and and the signposting to places people can
0: go. And and we'd certainly be interested in being involved in that and helping distribute it through our membership networks and not just in terms of our mental health nurses but across you know all of our health sector members that we've got. One of the things that has been Quite shocking in terms of my work with the Money Mental Health Policy Institute is that bit about how unsupportive we are as a society to people with money problems and mental health problems. And I think the kind of recovery space, the breathing space yeah. scheme, you know, really highlighted that. Is there anything that we can do to encourage people to recognise that stronger?
2: Absolutely. Um, I think the recovery space uh, report that we wrote and, and, and the campaign that came out of it it was alarming. The depth of people's experience of, of how their mental health problems cause these catastrophic financial problems. So being in hospital and not being able to receive your, your letters, meaning that you don't know that you're in arrears or you miss council tax payments. And you mentioned earlier about people with lived experience uh, speaking at our events, and, and one of our members of our research community that spoke to us um, shared with us her experience of, of being in and receiving council tax debt collection letters, but she wasn't receiving them because she was in hospital. Mm. And she came out of hospital, and on the day she came out, she came out to a council tax notification that she was going to be taken to court Mm. if she didn't pay the debt straight away. Um, And you can just imagine being in that horrendous place. So I think in acknowledgement of the amount of uh, work that health professionals have to do anyway, um, it's being aware that those things are linked Mm. and raising it with people and just signposting them to services or linking them up with the local money advice service mm. or kind of just being aware so it's not something that's hidden and people are having to feel ashamed about mm. um, and just bringing that, that up in conversation can be enough to, to bring it out in the open to help people begin to um, and pick what's gone wrong.
0: Yeah and, and I think it, there was a really good example that at the last event where someone with lived experience was talking about how she had real concerns about being able to pay I think it was a council tax yes. that month and the only way that she felt that she could cope was to put that on a new credit card and kind of discussing that with a health professional the day after and the health professional just kind of accepted that that had happened and and moved on to the next kind of discussion. Me kind of thinking back to the days when I was in practice as a health visitor, I would have had real alarm bells ringing if someone had said that they were putting, you know, significant debt onto a credit card with no idea of how to pay it off. Yeah. Kind of knowing that that could spiral out of control, I think it's really helpful that there are places out there where there is really good advice. I think at the time, probably that I was in practice, there was there was less places, and I know I would have encouraged you know yeah. people to look at the Martin Lewis's Money Saving Expert website. But we know there are more kind of specialist places to get advice from. Have you got any tips on where to go first?
2: So for when people are in, in financial difficulties already, so obviously Citizens Advice, Step Change, Christians Against Poverty are, are, are all great organisations that can help you with those arrears. Um, I think one of the big things with the prevention report that we're looking at is um, making sure people know about how to protect themselves to in the first instance but so, so they don't get to those difficulties. So that might not have helped our, our lady with um, the council tax arrears. But for example, um, if people experiencing mental health problems, before they become acu- acutely unwell, um, are able to put in place parameters. So for example, um, put in uh, place uh, blocks on their account so they can't spend over a certain amount of money. Or um, put money in, in, in pots within certain different bank accounts. Mm. You can po- uh, compartmentalize money to different, different budgets for yourself. So putting these things in place to prevent those future harm that future harm is, is really what the latest report's all about. Um and, and, and telling people about how they can do that and like mm. signposting. <laughs>
0: Plans for 2020. Have there anything that you can share yet, or is it all super secret? Uh,
2: yeah, so we've obviously kind of drawn up our plans uh, plans for the new year, um, and we are looking f- to taking our access standards work forward. So. That's whereby uh, we are working with uh, financial services firms to make sure that um, they have mental health accessible services, um, and and those services meet certain standards so that people with mental health problems are able to access them. So through through things like the communication channels. Um,
0: and you've done some work around utility companies specifically, yes. haven't you?
2: Yeah, and you, and utility companies too. We, we've done quite a lot of work with those. So so that's. That's one of our big pieces pieces of work for next year which will be taken forward. Um, And another piece of work that we're doing for next year um, is looking at um, third party access to the benefits system. So people who struggle, to contact the benefit system. They have certain routes available to them at the moment to do that, but that can be quite difficult. Mm. Um, so we're looking at how people can be supported for a friend or family member or a money advisor to, to be able to talk to the benefit system for them um, to prevent those financial difficulties, to prevent people being sanctioned and not claiming the benefits they're supposed to and mm. bits and pieces.
0: Well, Nicky, thanks for your time today, it's been brilliant. And up next, we've got an interview with Sarah Murphy, the Associate Director for Advice, Information, and Training at Mental Health UK.
3: My name's Sarah Murphy. I'm the Associate Director for Advice, Information, and Training at Mental Health UK, which is a UK-wide mental health charity. And two years ago, I set up Mental Health and Money Advice, which is a UK-wide advice service that specially focuses on helping people who are experiencing both mental health and money problems. And really that service came about because I'd been working in the sector for about 10 years um, and just couldn't get away from this sort of damaging cycle that I saw all of the time in relation to mental health and money problems. So we're set up now with the aim of helping people improve both their financial and their mental health
0: You sound really passionate about the job that you've done. I've heard you speak before. Where's that passion come from?
3: I think I just get really quite angry when I see that there is injustice in the world. And it feels like there's a double stigma when it comes to mental health and money in the UK. For the last 10 years, I've worked for a mental health charity and I've just seen countless examples of people being discriminated against or stigmatised because they have a mental health problem, which just seems ridiculous when you think that we all have mental health. And if you got sick with a physical health issue, you wouldn't be ridiculed or laughed at or feel that your job potentially might be at risk because of that issue. And before I worked for a mental health charity, I worked for a debt advice charity and just heard, again, countless examples of situations where people were just absolutely terrified because they were in a debt situation, felt they couldn't tell their families, were concerned about telling their employer, in some instances were concerned that they might go to prison because there are so many myths that surround sort of being in debt. So the, the combination of both of these things makes me quite cross and just feeling that there's this injustice in the world that really needs to be resolved.
0: And in terms of the history of Mental Health UK and, and the money advice service that you provide, how's that come about?
3: So Mental Health UK is actually quite a new charity. It formed in 2016 and it's actually bringing together four separate mental health charities that operate in each of the nations of the UK. So, Rethink Mental Illness operates in England and has been doing so since the 70s. Havel operates in Wales, Mindwise in Northern Ireland and Support Mind Scotland in Scotland. And again, all of those charities have been operating in their areas for about 40 plus years. But in 2016, we came together under the umbrella of Mental Health UK to be able to do work across the UK where it was required. And not long after that, we were chosen to be Lloyds Banking Group's charity partner of the year, where the Lloyds Bank staff actually do a wide range of fundraising activities, you know, bake sales and jumping out of planes and climbing mountains in order to raise money for the charity. And they raised a great deal of money. We're very grateful for that. And that allowed us to think, okay, we know that this is a problem, mental health and money. We know that people are contacting our charities really in a very low point. You know, some of them have reached the point where they've lost hope. they see no way out of this kind of both tangle of mental health and money problems. It's a big issue. Let's use the money that's been generated by bank staff to try to solve that problem. And that was where the idea for Mental Health and Money Advice came about. And so through the money that they raised, it allowed us to set up a website, which is mentalhealthandmoneyadvice.org. And that website has information everything to do with money really through a mental health lens and it's also broken down into the different nations because the law is different um, as I'm sure your members know in the different nations of the UK. It also allowed us to set up a telephone advice service which can offer casework for people who are struggling with their mental health and money problems. And that casework might be around um, looking at how they can maximise their income. So if they need to claim a welfare benefit, for example, because of their mental health, then we can work with them through that process. And also if they've got debt issues we're authorised to give debt advice and can work with them on those issues as well. And then there's the mental health element, which is really exploring, is someone already getting support for their mental health? If not, you're know, letting them know what they're entitled to and how they might be able to access that kind of support.
0: One of the things that can often happen with advice services that are paid for by industry is that there can be kind of concerns about will you know what the reason for that kind of support is. There an incentive for the bank to want people to go into greater debt? Would you say?
3: No, I don't think so. There is so much regulation now with from the FCA um, and a huge pressure on all financial services to to treat vulnerable customers fairly, basically. Um, and there was a, a new consultation out just recently on some new guidance um, for firms, which is really all aimed at taking a more of a preventative stance, understanding your customers, trying to see where they might be getting in into difficulty and trying to help them move away from that point. Certainly, there are more unscrupulous firms where you see them advertising at the bottom of the advert, sort of two thousand percent APR. You know, yet yeah, they do want people to take out their very high interest loans. But certainly, if if anyone was to fall into difficulties with those loans, they are also constrained by those same regulatory guidelines, and um, so they shouldn't be trying to make that situation worse for a person. Although, you know, working in the advice sector, we do see that that happens. I mean, the the funding from the banking group wasn't. You know, like I said, it was from their staff fundraising um, and we chose to set up the service with that money. We, we could have chosen to do something else. So they're, they're not involved in you know, any of our decision making around how we run the service or how we help people. Um, it is quite separate.
0: I was looking at the excellent website that you mentioned earlier and it kind of described two elements to the work that you do. One of them, obviously the website. Can you just give us a quick rundown of the different types of information and help that's on there?
3: Yeah, certainly. So the website was developed based on our understanding of the questions that people who were struggling with mental health and money were already asking us via our four charities. And we also did a big survey that went out quite publicly just to find out what exactly is it that you want to know. Overwhelmingly, what came back was that people really were unclear about welfare benefits and any benefits that they might be able to claim if they had a mental health problem. So there's a section on the website dedicated solely to welfare benefits and we've recently updated our personal independence guide which really takes you through that process of claiming personal independence payment specifically for mental health problems right from calling up and getting the claim form through to if you have to make an appeal what do you do at that point so it takes someone through the whole process. On the face of it, if you receive a personal independence claim form and you look at the questions, you probably think, well, this is great for someone who might have a physical health problem, but it might be quite hard to see how the questions that they ask would relate to somebody with a mental health problem. So what we've tried to do with the PIP Guide is really explain what each of the questions mean and give people some examples of things that they might be struggling with in relation to their mental health depending on their condition or how their condition affects mm. them in terms of how they can then apply for that benefit. So that particular guide is our definitely our most popular section on the website. But also there's a guide there on how to claim universal credit if you might have a mental health problem. Also actually carers. So your members might well be carers for somebody with a mental health problem or, or a friend or family member Um, of somebody with a mental health problem. Uh, And there's a section on there about different benefits that carers might be able to claim. I think sometimes carers forget about themselves because they're so busy caring for the the person that they love. So there's a section on there about things that they might be able to claim to increase their income if they're a carer. And aside from the welfare benefits section, there's also um, a section on sort of managing money, which is more around um, what happens if you get into debt. you've got a mental health problem because actually there are a number of codes of practice that banks utility companies even bailiffs or debt collection agents really should be adhering to if you have a mental health problem Um, and if you can you know let them know that you're struggling with your mental health and you've also got this money issue then they should sort of back off and give you a bit of time and space um, to get some help to try to deal with that issue. We've got various different kind of letter templates that are on there, which people can use. Um, and there's also a whole section on there about things like powers of attorney, which I think people get a bit scared about, I think that's quite complicated, that you need a solicitor to put one in place, which isn't always the case, actually, if you can kind of sit down and slowly work through the form. But a power of attorney can be a great tool if you know that you've got a long-term mental health condition and it's likely therefore that your health might fluctuate and you might in the future get to a point where you struggle managing your money. You can give a power to someone that you trust so that in that situation they would be able to support you and manage your money for you. And that can really just help in terms of reducing any potential negative impact um, finance-wise. And then the third section is really looking at mental health, but again with a money slant. So sometimes if you have a mental health problem, you can be asked to pay for social care or you might be being asked to pay for your prescriptions. And again, if your income is is reduced, that can be quite difficult. So there's a section on the website which explains about how the charges for social care can work, how prescription charges work and any different kind of hints or tips around trying to either negotiate those amounts or kind of challenge the amounts that you might be asked to pay or there are things like prescription certificates that people can get if they get a number of prescriptions which can make that a bit cheaper for them so wide wide range of information on there but everything money related but through that mental, mental health lens
0: It sounds like a really comprehensive place to go just thinking about our members that are supporting people talking to them about their mental health have you got any kind of real advice for them in terms of how they could make a difference in this space for people that they care for
3: absolutely i think they are absolutely key to making a difference in however form that they're in contact with someone that they're working with i'm sure they're going to be making a difference anyway but it might not be obvious that a money issue is perhaps impacting on someone's mental health. And if obviously if someone's working primarily to support mental health, a wide range of factors might, might be impacting on their health. So housing could be one, but certainly money could be another. And obviously your members aren't expected to be money specialists. But I think just sort of mentioning or asking the question about money and whether or not it's a you know an issue for that person—have they got enough to live on? You know, have they got all of the benefits coming in, or, or what about their outgoings? Are they struggling with debt? And kind of just exploring that with the person, and then signposting them to a, a source of support. So the website that I mentioned, Mental Health and Money Advice, has, has got that wide range of information on there. And actually it's also got a number of template letters which are designed for health professionals. Just as an example, if someone is making a claim for something like PIP, then it can be helpful for their claim to to have some evidence from a health or social care professional about how their mental health condition affects them day to day. But knowing what to put in that letter of support can be quite difficult. So we've got some template letters on there aimed at health and social care professionals, which just gives some headings and some things to think about. We had some really good feedback from a GP actually recently where they used that template to be able to write a letter of support and, and the person was successful. Successful in their PIP claim, so there, there are tools that, that your members might want to take advantage of if they're working with someone struggling with both mental health and money issues.
0: I suppose the other thing is that I know myself as a health professional sitting opposite someone who's obviously in distress if they do talk about money as a problem that it could feel quite limiting to say pop over to this website have a look there and and that'll solve these problems is there anything that we can offer people that is more of a kind of a hands-on support that's kind of more comprehensive than that?
3: I mean, there are, there are a wealth of um, excellent advice agencies out there, and I guess depending on the person that you're working with, preference, they might prefer a telephone based service, they might prefer a face to face service, um, but certainly organisations like Sipsons Advice, Step Change, National Deadline um, are all excellent. Our service, Mental Health and Money Advice, does do the casework that I mentioned, but because we are quite small, we're not sort of available to the public just now, and the way that people do get referred to us is through our partners. So Step Change, National Debt Line, and also the Money Advice Service can refer clients into us if they identify that they've got this mental health and money issue. I think it's a tricky line to balance, isn't it? Like you say, if someone's in front of you and they're distressed, you want to help them as much as you can. But I guess within the boundaries of your own knowledge and, and kind of expertise, and I guess also just time pressures as well and other health and social care professionals are under a great deal of pressure so I guess kind of hand-holding somebody to get them to that source of support is probably what I would recommend and then the money advice professional if you like take over from there but what can be really helpful actually particularly if it is more of a telephone-based service is if you are able to support that person, perhaps with opening posts, that they might be too frightened to open, you know, if they've got bills and things coming in. That can sometimes be an issue where there's just piles of unopened open post. But having somebody on the ground that they trust with them when they do, that can, can really be a big help to that person.
0: I think, you know, as part of the events that I've attended with the Money Mental Health Policy Institute, they usually have people with lived experience talking at the events a couple of things that have really been highlighted in my mind. One of them is that real desperation that people can feel, that when they are faced with letter after letter landing on the doorstep, that can be aggressive and really horrible to read, that they feel the inability to cope to know what to do next. Is there a kind of a message that we need to be promoting in terms of no? there's no situation money-wise that can't be recovered from, that there's always hope to get away from that real huge problematic issue?
3: Yeah, definitely. Like I said earlier, there's so many myths that still surround debt and money issues. You know, we still have people who contacting us absolutely petrified that they might go to prison for a credit card debt, which just absolutely cannot happen. People who are concerned that debt collection agents can just burst into their house and, you know, take all of their goods. Again, that absolutely cannot happen. So there are all these myths which perpetuate this fear around talking about debt. But like you say, Dave, there's no situation I've come across where we aren't able to find a solution. Now, that's not to say it's going to be a perfect solution where all debts are written off and you get a fresh start. That isn't always the case. But certainly, if you can evidence that someone's struggling, you can evidence what someone's got coming in in terms of their income, you can evidence what they've got going out and they've got to spend on their essential bills... If you can evidence that they've got a health problem that's impacting on their ability to manage money, then what we do tend to find is nine times out of 10, most creditors we call them, so people that you owe money to, whether that's a landlord, whether that's the council for council tax, whether it's your gas or your electricity, whether it's your bank, where you've got a credit card or a loan if you can show them an an evidence this situation then nine times out of ten they'll accept that and they'll come to some kind of arrangement for being able to pay the debt back and there are also actually lots of debt solutions out there which can give a more sort of final result so the extreme end um, is bankruptcy where you could actually get all of your debts written off and, and have that fresh start obviously that does impact on your credit rating but to be honest by the time someone's got to a, a, the stage where they're perhaps looking at bankruptcy, the thought of getting another credit card or a loan actually is the last thing on their mind um, a lot of the time. So oftentimes they're not too worried about that. But there are other solutions that you can enter into where you come to an arrangement to pay back the debt uh, over a period of time. And there are debt advisors out there who are willing and able to, to work through that kind of budget sheet with somebody and find out about someone's circumstances to be able to find that, that ideal solution for them.
0: I think the other thing that's come across in listening to people that have experienced money mental health problems is that need to have strategies in place for when things are going badly, because they find that then when things are going less badly, that they're not in as as bad a situation. Is that something else that our members could think about looking into and, and thinking about how they could support people to to make those kind of plans?
3: Definitely. I think your members are in the ideal spot for that, actually, because in order for those strategies to be put in place, it needs someone to be feeling quite well at the time and also have some insight into how their condition might affect them. So, for example, someone who might be living with bipolar disorder, when they're well, if they're able to kind of think about what are the signs and symptoms that I'm becoming unwell, how do I recognise those? And what can sometimes happen when I am unwell, particularly around money, then it's if they're able to recognise those signs and it's much easier to put in place various different strategies so that if they when they start becoming unwell, if overspending or compulsive spending is one of the things that might happen to them when they're unwell, then they can minimise those harms. So some of the things that could work or that, you know, your members might then just want to flag. Um, And then trying to get somebody some help to look into those in a bit more detail could be things like setting up a power of attorney. So, like I said earlier, if you become unwell and you're not able to manage your money, there's someone there that you trust. And it's all been set up in advance for them to be able to take over that money management. And then when you become well again, that power moves back to you. That can be quite a flexible option. There are various different apps that are out there now. I've heard of one called Tukin, which allows you to set up a trusted third party to get alerts if you are erratically spending or perhaps spending where there's a it's an inkling then that, that you're you're not very well. And that third party can then give you a call and have a chat with you and see how you're doing. And that's been shown to be effective and kind of reduce people's overspending when they're unwell. There are also a bit more old school hints and tips and hacks that we've picked up over the years of working with people. One of which is to just actually put your credit card into a plastic bag, into a Tupperware box, fill it with water put it in the freezer and freeze it because you literally cannot get to it then, or you certainly can't get to it quickly. And just giving that little bit of extra time or or friction um, between that kind of impulse of wanting to spend and then having to wait for your card to defrost can actually be enough for someone to sort of come out of that period or that feeling and, and reduce that spending. So there are a wide range of hacks that someone or people might want to put in place but yeah, it does really rely on people having a, having a stop and a think and thinking, oh, now that I'm well, how have I been affected in the past by my illness and and, and money? And having to think through some options that, that might be available to them. Lots of banks are doing great things now, particularly in, around gambling, where you can freeze your card or you can set it up so that you can't spend like in a casino for example or on a gambling thing so things like that are brilliant so if you know that is something that affects you um, or someone that you're working with then finding out what can your bank do for you or can find a bank that's going to serve your needs better but I think there's still a bit of nervousness in the financial services sector because you know we do live in an age where we expect to be able to order something on Amazon and it's going to arrive later that day we do want things now for firms to bring in that friction could cause a lot of other people to be disgruntled so that they're I guess trying to walk a tight room on that one but from my perspective it's all about choice and if people have got insight into perhaps how if their mental health might affect their ability to manage money and having some kind of friction would be helpful for them and they can choose to put on those blockers or those delays almost in in terms of a decision being made or a flag going to a third party anything like that uh, that they can put in place which will just give them a little bit of extra thinking time is definitely to be welcomed. I think the key thing is For your members both in terms of the the people that they're working with but even for themselves or their friends or family members I guess it's just to remember that everyone does have mental health and it could either be if someone has a mental health problem long term like a mental illness the, the symptoms of that mental illness might cause them to struggle around money management a bit more or it might mean that their income is affected but there are always information services advice services out there that can help people in those situations so not being afraid to, to talk about the links between mental health and money, I think, is, is really important, because if we don't talk about it and kind of try to normalise those conversations, then this stigma that I talked about earlier is, is going to perpetuate But also, again, whether it's people that they work with or themselves, anyone can find themselves in a change of circumstances which causes them to have a money problem. And that's often not through anyone's fault. You know, it could be a relationship breakdown or perhaps a sad bereavement. Sometimes if people lose their jobs unexpectedly, then that's going to cause what we would call an income shock, an income change. And, you know, the pressure of dealing with that is very stressful and that can then lead to people struggling with their mental health. And again, my message really would be just to to talk about it, to ask people if they're okay, and to not be ashamed of wanting to talk about money or needing to talk about money or needing to talk about your mental health because there are lots of charities and advice services out there that are set up specifically to help people exactly with those issues and absolutely millions of people struggle with those issues so it's, it's nothing to be ashamed of and, and I would actually say it's quite normal but certainly the, the sooner that you know, you feel able to talk about it or can talk to somebody about it then the, the easier any solution to put in place is going to be
0: Well thanks for your time today Sarah, you've done a brilliant job in explaining all the work that you do and hopefully it's going to really benefit our members, so thank you for your time. Thank you. So Nikki, we've had the chance to listen to the interviews, have you got any thoughts or comments about what you heard?
1: For me, what I really like about them is that they are explicit, they're clear, they really give you an understanding of what the what the problems are, but more importantly, they give us really good suggestions of what we can do. You know, we're not powerless, we're, this is not just happening to us. Um, in terms of looking after new nurses coming in and seeing them in their bursaries, in, in terms of uh, thinking about how nurses who are householders are managing at the moment and thinking about how people using our services are under pressure. And the worst thing I think that we could do would be just to sit down and take it and say that this is acceptable. It's not. It's not acceptable that vulnerable people are bullied and harassed by banks. That's not OK. You know, it's so obviously not OK. I'm surprised it's not more of an issue. And I really like the fact that there's lots of things that you can do. And I think the first thing you do is inform yourself. And the second thing you do is think about what you're going to do about it.
0: One of the things I found Mm. great from it is just that constant reminder about the excellent work that organisations are doing out there. And I think that Mental Health Nursing Association should be really proud Mm. of the fact that we have been a lifelong ally with Mm. the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute. Uh, We got involved with its Mm. first campaign and have been involved with every campaign since. Because we do know the value of supporting this kind of work, that people need support with their mental health people need support with money issues yep. and the two are so inextricably linked often uh, that they do need to go hand-in-hand hand. Yeah. Uh, so it's a real privilege to be a part of that and hopefully along may that continue
1: Yeah, it's inspirational to see people who are in, in a world where you get a lot of bad news people who are really proactive people who are really dedicated and ethical and doing impressive work work that we can all be proud of <music>